So Revelation 19, we'll read verse 11 through 16. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, this week, listening to a teaching from Mike Foch, and it, it, the quote hit me hard. It says, in the end, everyone is going to meet God as he is, not as they might wish him to be. Again, every single one of us, all of humanity will one day meet God as he is, not how we hope him to be, not how we wish him to be, not how we've construed him to be. We will meet him as he truly is. And the question is, do we have the proper view and understanding of who God is and of who Jesus Christ is? Or do we have this different person altogether in our minds? And we're going to go a little bit slower this morning through these scriptures because we know the book of Revelation, it's all about revealing the person of Jesus Christ. So whenever we come to a portion of scripture in Revelation where we get to see Jesus, I like to just take some time as we go through it. Because oftentimes our, our view of Jesus Christ, maybe it's of him as a baby. And whenever we think of Jesus Christ, we think of the little baby in a manger. We pull out of the closet during Christmas time, right? And we put him where we want him. And then after New Year's, Dia de los Reyes, right? Or whatever your final day is, you sort of put him back in the closet and forget about him, right? Maybe your picture of Jesus is the Jesus on the green flannel board with all the little baby lambs all around him, right? And all the little children. But it's always important, I believe, for us to have the proper view of who Jesus Christ is today. Who he is right now and who we will one day see him uh, as. Charles Spurgeon, we went through this quote when we went through chapter 1. It's a big quote, but I think uh, you'll be able to catch it, pay attention. Spurgeon says, low thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ are exceedingly mischievous to believers. If you sink your estimate of him, you shift everything else in the same proportion. He who thinks lightly of the Savior thinks so much less of the evil of sin. And consequently, he becomes calloused as to the past, careless to the present, and venturesome as to the future. He thinks little of the punishment due to sin because he has a small notion of the atonement made for sin. Because he has a small notion of the atonement made for sin, Christian activity for right is also abated as well as a holy horror of wrong. He who thinks lightly of the Lord Jesus renders to him but small service. He serves little who loves little. And he loves little who has no sense of having been greatly beloved. 
The man who thinks lightly of Christ also has but poor comfort as to his own security. You see, with a little Savior, I am still in danger. But if he be God Almighty, he is able to save even unto the uttermost. Then I am safe in his protecting hand, and my consolations are rich and abounding. In these and a thousand other ways, an unworthy estimate of our Lord will prove most solemnly injurious. The Lord deliver us from this evil. If our conceptions of the Lord Jesus are very enlarged, they will only be his due. We cannot exaggerate here. He deserves higher praise than we can ever render to him. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is he above our loftiest conceptions. Even when the angels strike their loudest notes and chant his praises most exulting on their highest festival days, the music falls short of his excellence. Rise then, my brethren, as on eagles' wings, and let your adoring souls magnify and extol the Lord your Savior. Let your thoughts of Christ be high, and your delight in him will be high as well. Well, what's your view of Jesus Christ? Is he just a small figure that you sprinkle on top of your life to make your life better? Is he just this small figure, this small insurance policy that if there's a heaven and a hell, you're protected from spending the eternity in hell? Or is he your life, your existence, your breath, your everything? Again, I encourage you, what's your view of Jesus Christ and is it in line with the being who spoke the world into existence, who spoke the universe into its being? So we start off in verse 11. If you remember the beginning of chapter 19, verse 1 through 10, we looked at the wedding feast, right? The supper of the Lamb. All the guys were uncomfortable having to picture themselves as brides on the wedding day, right? Don't worry, later today we'll all become a part of the army of Jesus Christ and all the guys will be happy again at how Jesus sees us and how he uses us. But in verse 11 it starts off and John says, Now I saw heaven opened. And again, Revelation is so important and it's different from every other book of prophecy. John is not just getting a vision or being told from God a prophecy that will one day happen. But John is being transported to a place where he's watching these events unfold. Isaiah prays a prayer that will one day be answered. It's in Isaiah 64 verse 1 and 2. Isaiah prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens. That you would come down and that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood and as fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries. That the nations may tremble at your presence. Again, Isaiah's prayer, hopefully our prayer, is that Jesus, would you tear the heavens and come down? Would you tear the heavens, come down and pull us up? One day, God will answer Isaiah's prayer and hopefully our prayer as well. That's the first thing that catches John's attention here. The second thing that catches John's attention here is a white horse. For all you animal lovers out there, right? The second thing he sees is this white horse. And having a horse in biblical times was a big deal. Right? For us, lots of us have cars, but it's different if you have a, a Porsche or a Ferrari, right? a high-end Mustang. It's a whole different type of vehicle there. And having a horse was a big deal. It spoke of honor, 
of having power, of having speed. And the color of this horse being white speaks of victory. Roman generals, when they would win a battle or a war, they would come back in a great parade riding a white horse so that they could celebrate their victory. And this won't be any ordinary horse. This wasn't a horse that was sacrificed for a tasado right here in, in earth, right? And they made meat out of the horse and then ends up in heaven somehow and God picks one of these leftover horses. No, this was a horse created in heaven for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's one thing to have a vehicle. It's a whole nother thing to have a vehicle designed for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you remember, what type of animal did Jesus ride into Jerusalem in his first coming? A lowly donkey. That, that's how he came into Jerusalem his first time. But the second time, he will be riding a grand and an incredible white horse that's ready for judgment and war against everyone who has rejected him. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. One of my favorite portions of scripture, and it truly gives us the best view of the humility of Jesus Christ all the way to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of his first coming and how his second coming will look so different. Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Again, Jesus, he came. He made himself of no reputation. He wasn't born into a palace or as a king or as a prince. He was born into a barn and into a feeding trough. He took himself down to the point of a slave, to the point of death and the death of the cross. But that's not who he still is. That's who he once was. Now he will one day come to rule and reign over the heavens and the earth. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3, it tells us that the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. All of the kingdoms, all of the nations of the world will rise up to fight against God and Jesus will deal with them. We could turn quickly to Matthew chapter 25. Whenever Jesus speaks about his second coming, it's important for us to note and pay attention and there in Matthew 25, verse 31, again, no longer that carpenter. In Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Again, when Jesus comes again, 
All the nations will be gathered before him and he will deal with every single one of them. Jesus first came in humility. He was raised in obscurity. He lived in poverty and he died sacrificially. That's Jesus' first coming. But that will look nothing like his second coming. We know that his first mission, Luke chapter 19 verse 10 tells us that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was the reason, that was Jesus' first mission, was to come on a rescue mission. To come looking for lost souls and to save lost souls. And all of us, all of humanity was lost. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9 tells us that God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Again, the first time he came, it was on a mission to save us from the wrath of God, to save us from our sins, to save us from ourselves. But one day he will come in the clouds and take his church home. And then seven years later, he will return to this planet to make war and to judge everyone who rejected him by the wrath of the Lamb. Back to Revelation 19, it tells us the one sitting upon this white horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This name faithful means that he is worthy of trust, that he can be relied on. Again, isn't that something we cherish, something that is so lacking today? Someone that is worthy of your trust, someone that you could truly rely on. You don't have to worry if they're going to pick up and disappear and if your money's going to be gone or if you'll never see them again. Our God, our Savior is worthy of our trust. We can rely on Him. Even when we're faithless, He remains faithful. He's also true. That means that He's opposed to that which is imperfect. He's opposite of that which is defective, that which is frail, and that which is uncertain. It's like when you have some pure gold in front of you versus adulterated metal. Again, he is perfect. He is genuine. He is exact. He is legitimate. He is the legitimate Savior of the world. The legitimate King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's going to come to judge. And he judges in righteousness. John chapter 8 verse 16, Jesus says, Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. His judgment, it's true. It's righteous. He doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't judge with false motives. He doesn't judge you differently because you're his buddy or you have money or power. No, his judgment is true and righteous. In Revelation 15, they're singing the song of Moses the song of the Lamb. And this is how the song goes in Revelation 15, verse 3. It says, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. And even here in Revelation 19, verse 2, it says, For true and righteous are his judgments. Again, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. First mission, 
was to seek and to save. First mission was to demonstrate love. First mission was to make a way for salvation. The second mission is to righteously judge and make war against everybody who did not accept his first mission. Again, our God is love, but our God is also a God of righteousness. This is the beautiful balance of God, the beautiful balance of Jesus Christ, right? The dichotomy there. He is pure love, but he's also pure righteousness. And anyone who has rejected him, anyone who has created their own version of God in their minds, their own version of justice and heaven and hell in their minds, they will be judged for it. He is faithful and true and righteous in his judgment and in his war. He's not doing it with an ulterior motive. He's not going to war for money or profit. He owns the universe. He's not going to war for more power. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He has all of that. right? Are very many wars truly righteous wars? Very few examples of that in our nation, in our world today. Most wars are done with different motives, money, power, strength, right? whatever idea someone has. Spurgeon says war still seems to be a piece of business in which truth would be out of place. It is a matter so accursed that falsehood is there most at home and righteousness quits in the plain. But as for our king, it is in righteousness that he does judge and make war. You see, Christ's kingdom needs no deception. The plainest speech and the clearest truth These are the weapons of our warfare. That's the weapon of our warfare. How are you fighting your spiritual battles? How are you trying to reach your family? Are you watering down the gospel? Are you trying to sweeten the deal? Or are you just standing back and giving the plainest and clearest truth? Are we trying to doctor it? Again, these are the weapons of our warfare. It's the plain and simple truth of God's word. God, he's demonstrated his love for every single human. Do you know that God has demonstrated his love for you? You guys don't know like the nine, right? We've got to pray for each other, right? God has demonstrated his love for you and I, each and every one of us individually, in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of the kingdom of God, he sent his only son, his one and only son, to die a wretched death for you and me. He's already demonstrated his love towards us. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. Peter in 1 Peter 5, verse 10 says that he is the God of all grace. In the Psalms, in Psalm 59, verse 10 and 11, he is the God of mercy. But one day, enough will be enough. And our God doesn't judge based on time. Our God judges based on morality, iniquity, and our sin. That's how God judges. That's when God says enough is enough. God speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15, 16, he tells him the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there's a moment, there's a line in the sand that no one knows, even in our lives personally. You look at the life of Samson and there's just a line in the sand that no one knows when we cross that line where now we have the taste of the wrath of God. Again, our God is love. Our God is the God of all grace. Our God is the God of all mercy. But he is faithful, just, and true. We have to be careful with this because there are many 
Christians today that are claiming that they're more loving, more gracious, and more merciful than God himself. That happens in so many of us when we try to call sin no longer sin. When we say this really isn't sin. In that culture it was sin, but today it's not sin. What we're claiming to do is saying, I am more loving than the God that sacrificed his only son for all of humanity. Friend, be very careful of that. Be very careful that you're not succumbing to the world and being squished into the mold of this world instead of holding on to the truth of God's word because you are literally claiming that you are more loving, gracious, and merciful than the God who is love. One day he will judge. One day, the, the day and the hour, no one knows. But man mankind's pride and sin will reach a point where Christ will come and save his church. Christ will come and he will save all of his ambassadors. He'll clear out the embassy, right? Some nations, they don't do that. Christ, before he pours out his wrath, he clears out the embassy. He saves each and every one of us, right? We have to be careful with that. Sometimes we see natural disasters happen and we say, this is God's wrath on this city. This is God's wrath on that nation. The only way we can claim that is if all the churches are gone and all the believers are out of that city. Because even with Lot, I don't think Lot's anybody's favorite Bible character, right? I don't know of many Lots. If you named your kid Lot, we got to pray for you, right? We got we to think about you. But not many believers love Lot. And even God pulled Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah before he poured out his wrath on him. That's what's going to make the great tribulation just so insane. That's why Jesus says it's like something that has never happened on this earth. Because the difficulty we go through today... The tragedies we go through today, the natural disasters that take life and cause so much carnage today, it's not the wrath of God, it's just the consequence of sin. It's just the fallen and sinful world we're in. But during the great tribulation, Christ will come and he'll take his bride, he'll pull out all his ambassadors, and then God himself will pour out his wrath actively upon this world. And that's why we have to be so careful. Are we rejecting him? Are we fighting against him? Are we despising him? Because if that's who we are, we will one day taste of that wrath. A lot of scriptures on this. I think this is such an important idea for us to, to sit on and think about. In John 12 verse 48, Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. There's this incredible thing, again, here in chapter 19 that we will discover. The very same word of God that is the seed of the gospel that can, that can go into our heart and breathe new life and joy unspeakable. The same word that washes us from this world. The same word that renews our mind. If we harden our heart towards God, will be the exact word that will judge us for all of eternity one day. That's why it's so important for us to take God's word seriously. It's literally life and death is found in this word because either we humble ourselves and we accept it or one day we will be judged by it. Deuteronomy 18 verse 19, Old Testament. It says, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. In Isaiah 53 verse 3 Speaking of Jesus' first coming, it says he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows 
and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Again, in the past, God's own people, his own nation Israel, his own priests, his own Pharisees, they rejected Jesus Christ. And it's no different 2,000 years later today. People still despise and reject Jesus Christ. They mock him. They mock his word. They mock our morals. They mock the morals of the Bible. It's the world that we live in. In Matthew 21, 42, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, Have you never read in the scriptures? I love it when Jesus does this. We see a sense of sarcasm in Jesus Christ here, right? He goes to the Pharisees. He goes, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, when Jesus comes back on this white horse, no one will be questioning who that is up there. Nobody will be saying it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. Nobody's going to be saying that. All of humanity will know in an instant this is the one, the Messiah. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one that we have rejected. He has become the chief cornerstone. Luke chapter 9 verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed. When he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Again, are we ashamed of him? Are we ashamed of his words, the words of the gospel? Acts chapter 22 and 23 It says, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet, that prophet capitalized, shall be utterly destroyed from from among the people. Again, from the time of Moses, God is warning. One day there's one coming, and if we don't hear him, if we reject him, if we flare up our pride against him, we're going to be destroyed. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3 tells us, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Again, how can we escape if we neglect the salvation? What a great salvation. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Two more scriptures on this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Hebrews 12, verse 24 tells us, To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Again, Jesus, when he was on earth, there's a few times where he spoke and everybody just fell flat on their back. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he reveals who he truly is. For a moment, the three disciples flat on their faces, freaking out. Roman soldiers come to arrest them. He says, I am. They all fall back, right? 
However, when Jesus comes again, not only will the earth shake, but the heavens themselves will shake. Does that sound like the book of Revelation, right? Stars falling from the sky, mountains disappearing, islands disappearing. The whole world, the heavens will be shaking and rattling. And if in the Old Testament they weren't able to escape who refused God, Moses, his messenger on earth, how much more will we not escape if we turn away from the one speaking from heaven? Finally, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 and through 31 It says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, are we here insulting the spirit of grace? You see, that's why we have to be so careful when we think we need to twist scripture around. And when we say sin really isn't sin, this really isn't that bad, it's the culture. We are insulting the spirit of grace. You are saying in your pride that you are more gracious than the God of all grace and the spirit of grace. When we continue to sin over and over again, we're, we're thinking the blood of Christ as just something that's common, not something so special, not something so holy. We have to be so careful with this. You see, there will be no escaping or running from the judgment and the war of Jesus Christ. Right? A lot of guys, they love those movies of vengeance. Somebody hurts a guy's dog or his cat, right? his family member, and then half the universe has to die in his, right, his path of vengeance. But vengeance belongs to God. It literally belongs to him. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And there's going to be no escaping. There's going to be no running from the judgment and the war of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's already provided the way of escape. And the price for our way of escape cost him his own life. Cost him the spiritual body he had before he was born into this earth. Again, it came at such a great cost, not just his death, but who he is and how he's going to be acting like for the rest of eternity, his great humility towards us. So if he's already provided the way of escape and we scoffed at him, we scoffed at his death, we scoffed at his sacrifice, we kept rejecting him, we kept refusing him, there will be no way to refuse or run from the wrath of the Lamb. We need to stop trying to wish him to being another God or thinking he's another God or thinking he's going to judge us on a different scale. We have to take him at his word and what his word says. We go back to Revelation 19. That's verse 11. Verse 12 says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Uh, Some of the spouses here, you know each other very, very well. Some of the husbands here, they're wise enough. They've known their wives long enough that they'll say, Hey, honey, is it okay if I go do X, Y, or Z? And she'll go, That's fine. (laughs) 
And then the guy knows that fine means it's not fine, right? I am not going to do that. Here, right, the saying is, I can read you like a book, right? I know you like a book. And that's what it's speaking of, the eyes of fire here. That Jesus, his eyes are all searching, all penetrating. It's a consuming indignation and judgment against sin and vengeance on the ungodly. Our Lord sees everything that's happening. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is a surprise. He's never fooled and sooner or later everything will be judged by his absolute holiness. Mark chapter 4 verse 22 tells us that there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed nor has anything been kept secret but that it should come to light. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, it says, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account every single one of us will give an account for our lives what did you do with your 40 years here your 60 years here your 80 years your 100 years here what did you do with it and again if we're disciples of Jesus Christ that doesn't mean you just get saved and you go to your white picket fence and do whatever you want in your perfect house being a disciple means that you're following your master you're trying to emulate your master and you're trying to bring more disciples to the master And we're going to be judged for that one day. And he's going to see everything. The eyes of fire, again, means he can read us like a book. He can discern every thought, every intent in our heart. Every time we get annoyed or bitter at a portion of Scripture. Every time we think we know better than God. Every time we have a disgusting and a sexual immoral thought in our mind, he sees it. Every text we've ever deleted... Every private window we've ever opened on a web browser. Every picture and message that has disappeared because of technology. He sees it and knows it. Our very best mask. Our very best costume. All of our ulterior motives. Our deceit. Our hypocrisy. He sees and reads through all of it. And to some, this is frightening. To others, it brings us peace. Let's turn to Psalm 139, and again, I think there's three options here as we read through Psalm 139. Either we read through it, and we think we're completely fine and dandy, and it's just the pride and hard heart that we have, right? We're like a Pharisee, and we think, ah, completely fine, I'm amazing, God's lucky to have me and save me, right? There are other people that are read Psalm 139, and they'll be fearful, And then there's those of us that maybe you read it and it brings comfort to you. Psalm 139, for the chief musician, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Right? Some of us, we live life and we're just like, man, no one understands me. 
Every time I talk, every time I do something, people take it the wrong way. Friend, realize God knows you. He understands you. He's actively searched you out and he knows you, right? You're known by him. He knows our sitting down, our rising up. He understands our thoughts. He comprehends our path. He's acquainted with all of our ways. We don't even have to say a word. He knows it all together. And again, this can bring us peace in coming to Jesus Christ. Because if we're tired, if we're weary, we can come to him, lay our burdens at his feet, and we will find rest. We can come and confess our sins to him. And it's not like he's surprised. Zach, you did that? Oh my goodness, I can't believe that. He knows it all. He knows my, our thought process, the reason why. He knows it all. That's why it's, it's so dumb for us to think, I'm not going to confess my sin, right? I'm going to hide it and God's not going to realize it. And there's going to be this hypocrite and the Lord, when I get to heaven, it's all going to be okay, right? It's cute when a little kid does that. If you play peekaboo with a little kid, they literally think if they close their eyes, you can't see them, right? But in our hypocrisy, in our sin, we act so immature at times. We hold back our sin, and it's just a lie of the devil. It's a lie of the devil. When we're able to come to Christ and lay our burdens at his feet, we're able to come to him and lay our sins down, who we are, the the lies we've been hiding. When we lay it there at his feet, there is peace and joy unspeakable. There is a, a lightness about your life, and Satan does all he can to squeeze you to not do that. All the guilt, all the shame. What if they find out? What if they know? How are you going to come to him? Satan does all he can to keep us from there because he knows once we're there, once we realize it's not about us working up our righteousness to get to him, it's about our humility saying, God, you see all of me. Here I am, Lord, take me. Save me. You know my thoughts. You comprehend my path. You're acquainted with all my ways. Again, it's freeing. I hope each and every one of us can leave this place with that freedom, with that joy, with that peace unspeakable that we're laying our burdens at his feet. We're asking for forgiveness. We're saying, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Lord, you know it all already. But Lord, would you forgive me? We go back to Revelation 19. It says, On his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now, if you remember when Jesus first came, the only crown which he ever wore was a crown of thorns that was bashed into his skull. The Roman soldiers were mocking him. They were beating him. And in their mocking, they got a, a, a branch of thorns, right? And they, we, they wove it together and they bashed it into his skull. But one day he will return with many diadems on his head. That's not the crown of achievement. That's not the wreath, the Olympic wreath that we talk about. But it's the crowns of royalty and all authority. Again, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the ultimate in royalty. It's not the queen of England. It's not the Brits. No, the ultimate in royalty is Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate in power. The ultimate in authority. Is that how we have him in our lives? Or do we have our own little kingdoms that we think we're going to somehow beat the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? It says he has a name written that no one knew except himself. And commentators try to write down what his name is. It makes me laugh. It makes no sense, right? We could read it right there. No one knows his name except himself. Perhaps once we get to heaven, that revelation will come. 
That's the beautiful thing about Jesus Christ. That's the beautiful thing about God. We're going to learn more and more about him in heaven every day, every week, every month, every year, every millennium, just learning more and more about our incredible God. It reminds me of Judges chapter 13, verse 18. The angel of the Lord, this is Jesus, he's speaking to Samson's mom and dad, and they ask him, hey, what's your name? And Jesus responds saying, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Now, is Jesus' name wonderful? Is he Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank or anything like that? Not at all. The word wonderful there literally means secret. It means extraordinary. It means incomprehensible. He's saying, why are you asking me my name? You can't even understand it if I would speak it to you. So again, the mysteries of Jesus Christ that we will continue to learn more and more of in heaven. In verse 13, it says, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Sometimes you see in fighting, if anybody here enjoys MMA or boxing, anything else like that, sometimes you're tending to the wound of someone you love, and they're all bloodied, and you're tending to their wounds, and then they say a statement. It's not my blood. You sort of take a step back, right? And whose blood is it? And why is it on you, right? Literally, that's what's happening here. The blood of our Savior that was shed for our sins and humanity, that, is, that page has come and gone. Now his robe is dipped in the blood of the wrath of the Lamb. The winepress that we've been reading about through Revelation. His treading of the winepress of the wrath of the Lamb of God. In Isaiah 63, verse 1 and 2, and a prophecy here from Isaiah, he says, This one who is glorious in apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garment like one who treads in the winepress? Again, Jesus will come back and return. Either his whole robe will be in crimson or it will be white as snow with that crimson on the bottom. But he's coming to exact wrath and vengeance and judgment and justice upon this world. It tells us that his name is called the Word of God. John, he's the author of Revelation. And this is one of John's favorite titles for Jesus Christ. Let's turn to John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, we see this title right away. And again, the power of Jesus Christ, just the power of our God. His name is called the Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Then you jump down to verse 14, and it tells us, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, family, that's why God's word has to be so important to us, so special to us. We really want to get to know Jesus Christ. It's by going through his word. Not a chore, not a laundry list, not a I have to do this checklist. This is how we get to know Jesus Christ, by going through his word, cover to cover. He is the word of God. 
Back to Revelation 19, verse 14, it says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Again, for the guys, last Sunday was weird, picturing us as the bride of Christ, right? And our white, clean linen, right? A little bit weird for some of the dudes here. But now, we are these armies in heaven. We're following him. We're coming back with him. And again, our memory here on this earth isn't that great. Maybe tomorrow you'll forget this teaching altogether. I won't hold it against you. A week from now, a month from now. But whenever this happens, we'll be reminded of this teaching. We'll be reminded of this scripture saying, man, we're here. You remember when we talked about this? You remember what earth once was like? Do you remember the, the hunger and the thirst we had to be here? And we'll finally be here following him on these white horses, riding one with each other. If you're afraid of riding horses, don't worry. You're going to get a perfect horse, right? Perfect horse. You won't have to, it's not going to kick you off. You're not going to fall from the heavens, right? The only one. I always think of horses uh, when my small kids come up to dogs because they'll come up to a dog and they'll be freaked out. Someone's like, what's wrong? It's just a puppy. I was like, all right, man, if you had a six-foot German shepherd coming at you, you'd be a little bit freaked out and scared as well, right? If you had a huge horse coming at you, you'd be a little bit fearful and petrified. But here, we're riding these white horses. And what's our military uniform? Fine, white, clean linen. Fine, white, clean linen. Imagine if you signed up for the military and they say, all right, we're going to war. All right, put these on, right? Here's just a big white reflective shirt and just go out there, right? Would you feel safe? Would you feel safe, right, to consider what's going on here? Imagine you're going to the running of the bulls in Spain and your friend hands you a big red baggy jumpsuit. Says, hey, put this on, right, and, and go for it. We would be fearful, but truly this is revealing to us the power of our Savior. Because here in this war, we're just along for the ride, really. We're just watching him and what he's doing. We don't lift a finger. He really doesn't lift a finger either. It's by the power of his word. It's all by the power of the word. That's why we have to be so intertwined with the word of God. Verse 15, that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. Again, the same word that became flesh and dwelt among us to save us, the same word that is the seed that goes into our hearts and can breathe new life and regenerate us, the same word that Jesus washes us with, the same word that renews our mind, will one day be the same exact word to condemn judge and strike down the nations those who fought their whole lives to fight the word of God to call the liar to the word of God will one day be judged by the same word the power of this book in front of us Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 again we read this earlier but the word of God is living it's powerful it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. If you're here and you're struggling with anything and you ask one of the pastors, hey, I'm really struggling with sin. What should I do? I almost guarantee or hopefully their first question should be, are you reading your Bible? Are you reading your Bible? You're going through this difficulty. You're, you're right. You feel off. You feel like you can't overcome sin. Are you reading your Bible? And we get to the point where we almost scoff at it, right? Do you have anything else besides reading the Bible for me? Do you have any other way to work this out? And it's a lie of the enemy. 
You see, God's word, it's living, it's alive, it's powerful. That's why sometimes you come here and you invite a friend and you have a conversation on the way here and then the whole teaching's about your conversation. And you leave and your friend's mad at you. Why did you tell the pastor everything that we talked about, man, right? Are you texting him on our way here? What's wrong with you, right? It's not, none, of that, none of that's ever happened, just in case you're new here, right, and you're that friend. <laughs> it's never happened before. It's just that the Word of God, it's alive, and it wants to speak to you. But more often than not, we come to God's Word like it's an obnoxious chore. We come to it like, I have to do this. Or other times we come out of our heart of religiosity. We think that because I read God's Word today, I have my check mark, I get my gold star, and now God loves me a little bit more this Sunday morning because I did my 15 minutes in the Bible. doesn't work that way. His love for us doesn't change. His love for us, we've talked about, it's not like a stock market or a, a, a currency or anything like that that's jumping up and down. No, His love for us is perfect, unchanging. I read the Word of God not because God will do me more favors. I read the Word of God because I need it. I need to be transformed. I need to be renewed. I need to have the sword so I can fight the enemy and his devices. His Word is living. It's powerful. And out of his mouth, this same Word will strike down the nations. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh, right? He's riding the horse so everyone can see it. His name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our powerful Savior. We'll go through these next verses pretty quick. Next time we're together, we'll look more in depth as this is the beginning of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. We talk about it in Scripture, right? A thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning as the literal King of the new heavens and the new earth. And it all starts out with him clearing out all the evil government, all the evil kings, all of the evil captains, all of the evil people with so much money and power. He's going to clear all of that out. And then he's going to come and establish his kingdom. Or you could think of Daniel when he has that vision, that dream, and that big rock comes tumbling down and it destroys the huge statue made out of all the different materials. And then that rock establishes itself. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather together for the supper of, great, of the great God. That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them. And the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. We spoke about this last week. It's, it's two different suppers that we choose today. Which supper will you attend? In one supper, we're almost the guest of honor. It's his feast, but it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the bride of Christ coming, and it's the great reception. All of us eating together, all of our favorite abuelas and their best cooking. Right? It's all going to be served there. Right? It's all going to be there at the supper of the Lamb. The second feast, if you're not that bride, you are literally what's on the menu. That's what it says here. I don't know if anybody here has a fear of birds. If you're saved, you should have no fear of birds. If you're not saved, you should have a fear of birds, right? 
You will one day be eaten by them. That's what the word of God says here. That's what you can think of Goliath and David. Goliath says, hey, David, punk little kid, I'm going to feed you to the birds. And David says, no, I'm going to feed you to the birds. Your carcass will be fed to the birds. Verse 19, and I saw the beast, right, the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Again, everyone's going to see Jesus. There's going to be no wondering who this is. They know exactly who he is, and they will make war against him. Just like today, our world is at war with God, at war with what he says, at war with his creation, at war with him making the male and female, man and woman, marriage between one man and one woman. Our world is against this. Our world is against only one way to heaven. Our world is against the word of God, and it will be no different Except this time they'll literally gather their armies together to fight against the creator of heaven and earth. Then, it's kind of anticlimactic. No big battle scene. No slow motion with epic instrumental music. There's none of that, right? Verse 20, then the beast was captured. Just, somebody just grabs the Antichrist. Somebody grabs the false prophet who works signs in his presence by which he delivered those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. I love Joe Foyce. He says, it's just some random angel in the back, right? Hey, Larry, go grab grab those two guys and throw them in 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 the lake of fire, right? That's how powerful our God is. Verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword. They're killed with the very word of God that can provide life to others. It will lead to death which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all of the birds were filled with their flesh. Again, the word of God, it's so powerful. There's that quote, especially with Pharaoh, the same sun that melts wax hardens the clay. The same sun, same sun, same heat, depending what it's made out of, it'll melt one being and it'll harden another. Where are we at with the word of God? Does it harden our heart? Does it make us angry? Do we hold on to our idols, our little gods harder? Or are we melting and saying, Lord, it's all yours. Close with this one last quote. Worship team, you can come up. A.R. Falsetti says, The bride does not fear the bridegroom. Her love casts out fear. She welcomes him and she cannot be happy but at his side. The lamb is the symbol of Christ in his gentleness. Who would be afraid of a lamb? Have you ever heard of someone with a fear of lambs, right? A fear of little sheep? Even a little child, instead of being scared, they desire to caress it. There is nothing to make us afraid of God except for sin. And Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. What a fearful contrast is the aspect which he will wear towards his enemies. Not as the bridegroom and the Lamb, but as the avenging judge and warrior stained in the blood of his enemies. How how could he not judge? He's the very Lamb that came and sacrificed his life to take away the sins of the world. And now the world, even people calling themselves Christians, are clinging to these sins that nailed him to the cross. How will this lamb help 
but pour out the wrath of God. So again, which way are we seeing Jesus? Is he the lamb that we want to go to, that we want to embrace, that we want to sense his presence? Or will we be like those in the book of Revelation that are running and fearful of the wrath of the Lamb of God? Again, family, how large is your view of Jesus? Is he truly the king of the universe in your mind? Is he the king of your life? Or is he just a small seasoning that's just a little bit of an insurance policy on your life? How powerful is your view of Jesus? Is he able to save unto the uttermost? Is he able to free you from the sin you're dealing with? Is he able to free you from your anxiety and depression? Or is he just not powerful enough of that? How worthy is your view of Christ? Is he worthy of all honor, all glory, all of our worship? Or are there other things that are more worthy in our life than the one who gave his everything for us? And finally, how much gratitude does your view of Jesus Christ stir up in your heart? How much gratitude is there? Do you wake up each morning saying, Lord, thank you for today. Lord, thank you that you've saved me. Lord, thank you that you freed me. Lord, thank you that I'm not receiving what I deserve. How grateful. How grateful are you for his sacrifice, his love, him being that God of love, being the God of all grace, being the God of all mercy. How much gratitude is there within us? But hey, let's pray. Let's all stand. And we'll close in worship. If you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front. If not, we'll close in worship. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the power of your word. Lord, forgive us for mocking your word. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we could just take it when we please and when we feel like it, Lord. Lord, help us to... Lord, may you change our minds and may we realize what will really satisfy us, Lord. Lord, change our minds, clear our heart, cleanse our minds and wash them and renew them from the world and what will bring us more peace, what will bring us more joy, what will bring us more relaxation, what will bring us more contentment, God. Cleanse our minds, Lord, and give us a greater love for you and for your word, Lord. And Lord, I pray, Lord, I beg, I plead, if anyone's here and perhaps they're just the least bit fearful of the wrath of the Lamb of God, a bit fearful of hell for all of eternity, Lord, may you please draw them up front this morning, Lord, to pray, to confess all the sins that you already know of, Lord. For any husband here, any wife, Lord, any young man, young woman, Lord, may they be freed from the lies of the devil and trying to hold their sin and keep it to themselves, Lord. May we be obedient to your word. May we fall upon that cornerstone and be broken, Lord, so that we won't be crushed to powder later on. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning and this afternoon, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.